Hi, my name is Jackie. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 8. I play hard because that's how I do everything. I always push myself to be the best that I can be. Type 1 diabetes does not stop me from doing the things that I like to do. Hi Sean, thank you so much for being on the Team 1D podcast. For those of our listeners who do not know you yet, I wanted to give them a little bit of a background before we start. You have such an interesting story that I want to be sure that we share as much as possible of it. As we discussed later in the podcast, you founded the nonprofit organization Riding on Insulin. The Riding on Insulin website provides the following biographical information about you. Riding on Insulin founder Sean Busby is a professional backcountry snowboarder with type 1 diabetes who travels the world exploring remote corners of the globe on snowboarding expeditions. In 2004, while training for the 2010 Olympics, Sean endured a complicated diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. Considering leaving snowboarding altogether, Sean was inspired by reading stories he found of JDRF's Children's Congress. It was the stories of 5 to 7 and 13 year olds that inspired him to keep living his dreams despite living with diabetes. He founded Riding on Insulin, which is now a nonprofit organization to honor all the kids who inspired him to keep on living. Today, Sean runs Riding on Insulin as the executive director and makes appearances at the organization's global action sports programs, including ski and snowboard camps for kids, teenagers, and adults living with T1D, while managing his personal backcountry snowboarding career. In February 2014, Sean became the first person with T1D back to backcountry snowboard all seven continents. His expeditions include trips to Morocco, Antarctica, Patagonia, Iceland, Norway, Japan, Kyrgyzstan, Alaska, Tasmania, and more. Sean graduated from the University of Utah with a health degree in health promotion and education with an emphasis in diabetes. Sean and his wife, Molly, live off the grid, 63 miles above the Arctic Circle in Alaska's Brooks Range with their six dogs. So thank you for being here, Sean. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, uh, you you nailed it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, And actually, we have seven dogs now. Uh, okay. And we're about to get an eighth dog. So I'll get more into that later. But we're dog mushers as well. So that's why okay. we have so many dogs. That's cool, though. So where are you from originally? So I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up in Orange County and I went to junior high in Laguna Beach, California. So, you know, beaches, surfing, that was kind of the deal out there. So getting into mountain sports was fairly odd, but Southern California is kind of like the board sports capital of the world. So you're exposed to skateboarding, surfing, bodyboarding, skiing, snowboarding, whatever you may have, you know, whatever's around. Cool, cool. Laguna Beach is an awesome area too. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. On Fridays, we would have half days in junior high. And so we would just walk down. Uh, my school is right above Pacific Coast Highway. So we would just walk down to the beach on at the end of half days and we would just all hang out on the beach and go like skimboarding or bodyboarding, however the waves were. That sounds cool. So what was your story of being diagnosed with type one? How did that all happen? Yeah. So I was living in Steamboat Springs, Colorado at the time. And 
I had these these symptoms that were kind of going on and off. This was in the winter of 2003-2004. I was competing professionally in snowboarding and I had these symptoms of this like mystery kind of like flu-like illness and I had a lot of teammates that were returning back from uh, competitions all across the world and I just figured I caught, you know, maybe a bug that they brought back from Europe. And eventually it progressed really quickly in the springtime and I was extremely thirsty all the time and and I wasn't able to get out of bed. I, I had no energy. And my roommates would notice I would go to the grocery store after my training sessions and I would never come home with food. I would just come home with liquids and I would just like pound Gatorade jugs or like grape juice. And then I would feel absolutely lousy and horrible. Then I was at a competition and I was at the U.S. National Championships in Colorado. It was in Breckenridge, Colorado. After my competition was done, I came back to the condo I was staying at with my teammates and and uh, I began vomiting and I couldn't stop vomiting. I was just kept going and I was, I felt absolutely horrible. I contacted my parents. I was 19 at the time. And I asked my mom and dad, I was like, Hey, I'm really sick. I've never felt this sick. What do I do? And they explained to me how to go to an urgent care because I was healthy all my life. And I'd never really had to see a doctor except for like immunizations or like school physicals and that sort of stuff. So they told me what an urgent care was and how to do that they knew the next day I was supposed to be flying up to Quebec, Canada for the Canadian National Championships. So they just said, you know, wait, see if it's a 24 hour bug. If it's still going on in the morning, then definitely go into the emergency room or find an urgent care. And eventually I fell asleep. I woke up. I felt a lot better. Went to Canada, had no problems, finished out my season, came back and then just got slammed again. And I noticed that within two hours after any time I ate some food, I would become extremely nauseated and then I would start vomiting. And I actually became afraid to eat because I recognized that anytime I ate something, when two hours came, I got really sick. And so I figured, okay, well, maybe I have, I was like Googling, seeing what it was. And they're like, I, I don't know. I thought maybe I had an ulcer or something. So I went to the emergency room. Emergency room just said I had a bad bug. I probably caught it from one of my teammates. They gave me some anti-nausea medication, sent me back home. And they said, if the symptoms come back, come back in. So I ended up going to the emergency room. I believe it was, oh, I think it was seven times within nine days. It wasn't until the wow. seventh visit where a doctor came in, took one look at me, and then instantly admitted me into like the overnight stay part of the hospital. And there they saw that my blood sugars were elevated. They weren't crazy, but they were in like the 200s. And during that time, I had developed a severe case of pneumonia. So they kept me in the hospital. I ended up being in the hospital for 12 days. And during those 12 days, I, like I said, I developed a severe case of pneumonia that they were treating. And uh, they noticed that anytime they gave me an IV bag that had dextrose in it, my blood sugar skyrocketed. So that's when they were like, okay, you probably have diabetes, but I had a bunch of other stuff going on at the time. I also lost um, 30 pounds of my body weight during those 12 days. So I was 19 years old and I went down to 119 pounds because I just lost all of my, you know, muscle mass. My body was essentially eating itself. I didn't know I had type one diabetes. And um, at the time, Thankfully, I was under my parents' health insurance still because I was doing some college courses via correspondence and I was still a full-time student by doing it all online. And so I was under their health insurance. However, they had a really high deductible plan and being out in Colorado, I wasn't covered. So I was only covered um, about 30 miles outside of the state of California or 
or anywhere else in California. So once the hospital stabilized me, I was sent out to California and I was put through a test in California called the glucose tolerance test. Now that's a test that they usually administer to someone that they suspect may have like gestational diabetes or maybe type two diabetes. Never, you would, you wouldn't do that for someone that you would suspect of having type one diabetes. Again, this was back in, um, uh, 2004, it was the spring of 2004 when this was going on. And so back then, a lot of people, uh, it was still called juvenile diabetes and adult onset diabetes. It wasn't strictly called type one or type two. It was believed that if you got diabetes as a kid, it was type one. If you got it as an adult, like me being 19 at the time, it was typically type two. It wasn't until about two years later, the JDRF said they advocated for it being changed to type one or type two, because it can occur at any age and in different in both diseases. So anyways, I was put through the glucose tolerance test. I was told I would be given the results within 24 hours, 24 hours came, a nurse called, said, Mr. Busby, your lab results came in. Everything appears to be fine. Well, we have a great family friend who's a cardiologist and he was following what was going on. And he said, no, you don't go from being a professional athlete to now being this incredibly ill and sick and losing this amount of weight. Uh, why don't you go down, request a copy of those labs, send them to me and I'll take a look at them and send them to some colleagues of mine. So my parents and I went down to that doctor's office. We got a copy of the labs and it was my first time ever in my life looking at blood work. And I noticed, um, you know, on, like on the right side of your blood work, columns and it will say like yeah. abnormal high or whatever all of them were flagged high 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 and so we flagged down the nurse she went back got the doctor the doctor came back he uh, came out to greet us he apologized he said he wasn't sure why we were told everything was fine but indeed there is an issue so to go back into his office and we would talk about it so he sat us down and he goes mr busby don't worry i've dealt with plenty of people that have type 2 diabetes here's what we need to do what I didn't know at the time, and neither did my family, was that I was being misdiagnosed as a type 2. Again, I'm type 1, but I was being misdiagnosed at the time as a type 2. So he told me the pills I needed to take, how to check my blood sugar, how to like watch what I'm eating, and all this sort of stuff. So I was like, okay, great. You know, I've seen shows like House and ER on TV uh, back then. So I was like, you get people get diagnosed with crazy diseases in 30 minutes, and then they give them the medicine, and it's magical, and they go back to living their normal life. So I went home, attempted to do that and continued to vomit after any time I ate something with carbohydrates and my blood sugars were now in the 300s, the 400s. I couldn't get it down. Uh, we contacted the doctor. He said, okay, well, you're eating too many carbs. He put me on an all protein diet, which was horrible. And I, I just was losing my life. Like I felt like my body was eating itself because it was, and I didn't know it at the time because I didn't know that you could actually be misdiagnosed. And so so I went, this went on for about three months. Um, finally, I was, I was laying on my parents' couch in Southern California. It was summertime and I'm wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt because I need an elastic waistband, elastic cuffs uh, in order to keep my clothes fitting me because none of my clothes fitted. So I'm wearing sweat sweats basically in a hot summertime atmosphere in Southern California. And I start thinking, okay, maybe this is all mental. Like maybe it's all in my head. Maybe these medicines work. I just need to get back out of my parents' house. I need to get back to with my coaches and my trainers and back to Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And if I'm back in my element, maybe this medicine will all work. So I booked a plane 
to fly from John Wayne Airport in Santa Ana, California, back to Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And as I was getting on the plane, I nearly passed out. And I was rushed off the plane. I was taken to a teaching hospital at UCI Irvine in California. And there I was given the correct diagnosis of type 1 diabetes instantly. And that was exactly three months after being misdiagnosed and it was on my mom's birthday. And the one thing I say, the reason I knew that they were telling me the truth that I was now correctly diagnosed was because that very first shot of insulin that they gave me felt absolutely incredible and amazing. Like I felt life instantly come back into me. Um, I felt like a human being. My body was no longer eating itself. So it was the most incredible feeling. So now I had this new medical team and I just kind of embraced it all. I was like, all right, I see how you just made me feel from that shot. So how can I get back onto my snowboard? I got a couple more months until I have to be back on snow. What does this mean? How do I learn to be a 19 year old that's grown up free of an illness? Now, how do I learn to be, how do I learn to have this new life of mine? Can I still snowboard? Can I still be a professional athlete? And so they gave me the tools and resources and they educated me. And then I went home and I got online and I Googled and I came across the JDRF and they had that event going on called Children's Congress. And for those that don't know, Children's Congress is every two years where JDRF selects kids from every state or and teens uh, to go and speak to members of Congress in Capitol Hill on why we need to, to raise more funds uh, to find a cure for type 1 diabetes. And I was able to read these stories of parents talking about what it's like to have a two-year-old that has type 1. Um, then I read a story of a nine-year-old talking about what his life is like having type 1 diabetes. And then there was a story of a 13-year-old talking about when he goes and spends the night at a friend's house, how he has to have his uh, parents come over and check his blood sugar in the middle of the night at his friend's house. And then there's a story of a 16-year-old explaining when he goes on a date, why he has to tell his date, why he has to give himself a shot of insulin before he eats. And here I was, I was 19 years old. I was traveling the world for snowboarding. I was getting to do all these things. And the only thing I ever had to worry about was like an occasional pimple or if like some girl in one of my classes liked me. So it really like it grounded me. It showed me that if a two-year-old could do this, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 16-year-old, then surely so could I. I could figure it out. So I was really inspired by reading the stories of other people, teens, kids, and young adults living with type 1 diabetes and not having it limit them. It gave me a lot of hope in a time in my life where I was really crushed. Um, going through that whole misdiagnosis time during the summer, a lot of my snowboarding teammates were down in the Southern hemisphere where it was winter and they were training and they were competing and I wasn't able to be there. And because I wasn't able to be there, I started having a bunch of my sponsors. Sponsors are companies that support you, that they either give you money, they pay for your competitions, uh, they pay for your training, they pay for your living. It's basically your job. And um, since I started losing sponsors, I had one sponsor tell me that they couldn't support me because I was chronically sick. And that was very depressing. And that was the first time I ever discovered that, wow, a chronic disease is, is tough. It's, it's mentally tough. And I've, I've had bouts of depression with it. Um, I've definitely have had plenty of bouts of burnouts where it's like you do the same thing right every single day, day in, day out. You're always doing the same thing. You check your blood sugars. You think you're eating the right foods. You give the right amount of insulin. But your blood sugars, at the end of the day, your pancreas is broken and your blood sugars are like, nope. 
I'm going to make today a living nightmare for you, or I'm going to make this next week, this next couple of weeks, the next month, next few months, a living nightmare for you. And so it's just this constant battle and it's easy to get burnt out. It's easy to get tired of it. And so finding this community of other people, other kids, teens, young adults, adults that have lived with this disease, many of them for their entire lives. It really showed me that, man, if they can do it, I can figure it out too. And so it inspired me and I wanted to find a way that I could give back to the community because I knew if it wasn't for those stories at that time in my life, I would have given up. I would have given up snowboarding and I would have just think, thought it wasn't possible. And so since I realized it was possible, um, I went out and I learned about my new body. I went to the gym religiously every single day, early in the morning. I was so underweight at the time. I would go super early in the morning, right when the gym opened up because I was ashamed of how I looked. I had no more muscle. It was all gone. I was, I was just in a really dark place at the time. And so I started doing all sorts of exercises. I was swimming in the pool, doing laps, doing all sorts of different exercises that I typically wouldn't do for snowboard training. And only to do that to see how my blood sugars interacted with different forms of exercise. And then I would record it in a logbook just to see. It was like making, I was making a blueprint of how my body acted in different sorts of stressors and uh, how it acted in different types of exercise. And so I could reference that. And basically it was like a crash course in diabetes. It's like, how do I get to back to being a professional athlete? And how do I make this new body of mine a professional athlete again? And so that's what I did. And through that process, I learned so much. And again, like I said, I was inspired by everyone else that I wanted to find a way that I could give back. And so during that whole entire process, I started a nonprofit organization called Riding on Insulin. And Riding on Insulin is still around today. There's actually, I have another staff member. We have two, I have two additional staff members. There's one um, staff member right now running one of our camps in North Carolina. There was a hurricane that passed through, I think, yesterday. So the camp was on hold, but he's running a surf camp for kids and teens with type 1 diabetes. So riding on insulin, what we do is we hold action sports camps for kids, teens, and young adults with type 1 diabetes, primarily in skiing, surfing, and snowboarding. And we've also done mountain biking camps. We've held camps. Uh, we hold them every single year across the United States in multiple locations from the West Coast, the Midwest, to the East Coast, as well as we've held camps in Canada. We usually hold a couple camps in New Zealand every year uh, before covid um, and then uh, we've also held some camps in Australia as well. So we serve about 500 kids and teens a year through riding on insulin. You know, the best thing about that program for me is I, I have found that the next best medicine to insulin is a community. And that's where I find my community is just being around others that know exactly what I'm going through. And we have about 60, um, 60 coaches with riding on insulin that come out, volunteer their time, they fundraise. Um, we fly them out to different camps uh, throughout the year. We bring them out to a big coaches training every single year um, that's on the mountain. And they are some of the most amazing individuals. I, they're all over the age of 18. I would say of the 60 coaches that we have right now, I would say probably about 55 of them have type one diabetes themselves. The rest are either they have like a brother or, or like a sibling 
or maybe a niece or a nephew that have type one, or they have a best friend that has it. So there's this, there's always a connection. And then they go out and they work in our groups um, with the kids and the teens. And uh, it's, it's just an incredible time. I mean, if anyone's ever been to camp, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of any sort of camp, any sort of diabetes camp. Um, to just, you know, link up with others. My parents will never understand what I'm going through. My sister will never understand what I'm going through. My wife will never understand what I'm going through. They, they can kind of like, they can listen and try to relate, but not unless they live it. And being at camp around others that live it, they know exactly what's going, what you're going through. And you get to feel like you're on vacation. And, and that sense of normal, normalcy is, is huge. Um, and it, it's really refreshing. I found for me to get through those burnout periods. So, yeah, yeah. I went to, um, a type one diabetes camp for seven years and I can tell you, I definitely thought that it was a great experience just to meet people and see different ways that they handled their own situations. And you got to form connections with people outside of it that way, find other interests that you had besides type one, but you did also get to have the shared experiences that what really brought you together and experienced that part. So how do you handle dealing with type one while you are snowboarding or you are traveling in an environment where supplies might not be ample and very available worldwide? Yeah, that's a great question. So depending on if I'm traveling for various uh, expeditions, depending on if it's like a, if it's like a third world country or um, going to kind of places where it may be a little more complicated or there's a language barrier, there's a couple things I'll do. Sometimes I'll go on to like a, like Google translate and I'll put some key phrases in Google translate. Uh, like I'm having a low blood sugar. I have diabetes, give me some sugar and stuff like that. So I'll have that handy. So if I'm traveling in a foreign country, I can hand that to someone. The other thing to, depending on what country it is, basically nearly every country has some sort of diabetes organization. I can usually find someone to reach out to. Again, that's what's so fantastic about the type one community is it's, I can usually find someone to get in touch with and just kind of exchange some information or find out some information. I've had a few complications uh, once when I was traveling through Russia, when I was traveling through South America, just having, you know, a bunch of spare diabetes supplies like syringes on me. Um, It's just really important to have that doctor's note. And even if you can use Google Translate to get a doctor's note in English and then have you know, and then do the same thing on Google Translate and have the doctor write the same thing on the doctor's script in that language from your Google Translate. That's super helpful. But I usually, so if I go on like a two-week expedition, I'll travel with uh, four weeks of supplies. So I usually double the amount of supplies depending on how long I'm going for. Uh, I do use an insulin pump. So I'm on the Omnipod. Um, which is a tubeless insulin pump and pump companies. Most of all the pump companies I know, you can like rent a backup pump or like a loaner pump. And that's in case if you have a pump that breaks. And I've had this happen where like my PDM has like broken and, uh, and that can happen to any sort of pump. The PDM is to the pump uh, is what's it's called a personal diabetes manager. That's 
what operates my insulin pump, but you could just have, you know, your other, if it could be a tandem or a Medtronic and those can break, you know, while traveling, anything can happen, obviously. So it's always good to reach out to the companies, find out what the deal is about getting a loaner pump for travel and having your settings, um, like pre-written out. I just go through my settings and I take pictures with my phone and I save them as favorites in my phone. Um, so I can, quickly go and reprogram an insulin pump if if I ran into emergency. And then of course I bring up, you know, the for what I consider because um I've been on an insulin pump for so long, but I, I'll say the old school way of how I used to do it, which was syringes. So I may bring like some pins, some pin caps, you know, anything can always happen. So it's always about being super prepared when you're in a in a foreign country. In other countries, like if I'm traveling through Canada or like more of an English speaking country, I'm not so afraid of that um, because it's so easy to get online and connect with someone in one of those communities. And they're usually willing to help you out. Um, and in some countries, you don't need a prescription to get insulin. You can literally just go buy it over the counter. So it's just kind of knowing where you're going. Once I was traveling back from Kyrgyzstan and then I had a connection in Russia and I had a bunch of spare insulin supplies on me because I didn't want to have it on the checked bags. So I split it up in case my checked bags got lost. Um, so I had enough supplies to get me through for like at least like two weeks. And anyways, they tried to confiscate it at the Kyrgyzstan airport as I was going through security. They said I was too sick to travel. And uh, so they ended up basically taking it away from me and they went and they put it in my checked bag. And Molly began, my wife, Molly, she began crying because she was so nervous that I wasn't going to have any supplies, but she didn't know that I also put some supplies like in her carry-on which they didn't see. And so she already made it through. So I wasn't too worried because I already knew she had some supplies, but that was very chaotic. And it can definitely happen in those really kind of extreme foreign countries. I've been, uh, I once got food poisoning on my way to New Zealand. I did a stopover at the Cook Islands and uh, I got food poisoning and I ended up in the hospital. And it was the first time a nurse um, had ever seen an insulin pump. And she asked oh, no. me what it was. And so I, explain what an insulin pump was so it's definitely a real thing you know depending on where you're going it's like a lot of these countries some countries don't have this technology that some of us are are able to have again you, you just it, it comes down to research a lot of times and maybe connecting with a diabetes organization that's over in that country can also be helpful